Well, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are returning to our study of the Corinthians and the rich lessons about God, about ourselves, that we have been learning from them. We're going to be reading a few verses in the first half of that chapter in just a moment. But let me ask you a question here because our message today is set against a backdrop and that backdrop is present among us today. So here's my question. Uh, What would it take for you to not do what benefits you? What would it take for you to not do what's in your best interest? I mean, it's a floating strategy in us, right? Every day we get up, we're seeking to optimize our day. We use our gadgets. We we do whatever we can. We want life to have certain qualities. We've defined what those qualities are. We, We... as much as we possibly can, we have wired ourselves and made our lives answer to the idea that, that we don't want inconvenience in our lives. We don't want pain in our lives. We don't want difficulties in our lives. And so we, we survey life and we try and arrange everything as best we can to optimize it for our benefit. What's going on in me? How do I define myself? What's in my agenda That's coming up. And and let me make sure that I align as many things as I can. Schedule, people, places, where I'm going to work, where I don't want to work. Where I go to church, where I don't want to go to church. Do I even want to go to church? All those things are being, they're answering to something. Did did I feel like getting up today and going to church or not? Some of you, maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, I wasn't planning on coming, but I'm here. I made it. All those things are about us optimizing our lives to put our life in the very best, most beneficial condition we can possibly create. Which raises a question, what would make you violate that? Well, Paul's going to violate that. And he's going to present to us a principle that transfers from his life into everybody who's listening. And he makes an amazing statement here. But I want to turn you on to Paul's argument first. So I've titled this 16 Questions and a Statement to Live By. So he's going to ask 16 questions uh, in the coming section here. And I'm going to extract the statement this week. We'll go back to some of the questions next week. I just want to extract the statement for us. Let's start reading in chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 1. Am I not free... Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Now let me stop for a moment here and fill in a little bit of Paul's agenda here and the setting that he's in because the nuances of the setting are very helpful for us to figure out what's Paul feeling like in this moment? What is life feeling like for this guy in this moment? Well, well first, Paul, you know, Paul can be quite sarcastic. Am I not free? He's picking up something there. And if you go back and read through Corinthians, he's had a little discussion about freedoms. Remember the Corinthians were the people who were so free that they just did all kinds of stuff, whether it was sexually immoral. They just, they just had this freedom on steroids thing going on. So they were big proponents of freedom. And so Paul says, well, you're real big on freedom. How about me? Am I free? And so he picks up this idea and he's going to argue for something. He's going to argue that, that he is an apostle. And as an apostle, certain things would be right for him. So he's got a title. And he's got a life description that goes underneath that title. Now, I just want to only for a second show this from Paul's life. Because most of us, the second we hear the guy's an apostle, we immediately dismiss him. He's not one of us. He's not, definitely not me. Maybe a pastor could get something out of this. But, you know, basically his situation doesn't relate to mine. Um, All right, but in similarity, you've got a title somewhere in your life. Your boss, business owner. Property owner, neighbor, husband, wife, friend, whatever your title is, and you argue for that, 
certain rights come with that. There's certain things that are just rights for you because you got that title. So that's what Paul starts off arguing here. And then he unearths something in verse 3. This is my defense to, to those who would examine me. Now, those who would examine me. Hold on to that phrase for a second. Because Paul is about to do something radically beneficial, not for himself, but for that audience. But you've got to get a feel for who this audience is. Because they're quite a repulsive audience. When Paul brings up this issue, you can read through it too fast, but if you collect Paul's thoughts along the way in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul has a hostile relationship with quite a bit of the church in Corinth. Nobody attacks him the way this church does. These guys are going to try and undo his apostleship, call into question who he says he is, sprinkle doubt all over him, muddy his reputation. That's who these people are, that Paul's about to figure out how to have them benefit from something in his life. All right, here's a quick, quick background voice. 1 Corinthians 4, you can read these really fast. Paul says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Right? So they're examining him in chapter 9, they're judging him in chapter 4. Also in chapter 4, we are fools for Christ's sakes, but, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. This is biting sarcasm. This is Paul saying, you guys have become kings. We're just these little pauper Christians. You guys have got it figured out. This is as sarcastic as the Bible gets when you hear this. In chapter 4, he goes on and says, some are arrogant. Some of you guys are just arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, right? So this is not a friendly exchange. Chapter 10 of, of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. And immediately that makes him think of something. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Don't pay attention to this guy. 2 Corinthians 11 says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles you guys are following. Even if I am unskilled in speaking. Why would he say that? Because that's what they're saying about him. I'm not so in knowledge. Why is the great apostle Paul that you and I hold up as a hero being treated like such a loser by these people? So how attractive is this? I mean, put yourself in this setting. In whatever setting you're a part of, whatever group you fit into, there's a little segment of that group who when you turn your back, they gossip about you. When you walk in the room, they suddenly go quiet and stare at you funny. You know they have said things that have, that have mischaracterized things that you've done by telling part of the story, not all the story. Right? This, this is a good segment of the Corinthian church to the apostle Paul. So in, in this moment, before we read the rest of this passage, Paul, as an apostle, legitimately has rights for people to relate to him with that understanding. I am an apostle. As such, people should be relating to him a certain way. And that's the argument he's going to make here. Paul makes the, he builds the, the building and says, that's a building. He says, I'm an apostle. It's right for you to relate to me a certain way. And then he depicts this unattractive, repulsive, hostile relationship that he has with these people. And then he's going to turn around, fast forward. I'll read the rest of the verses in a second. Fast forward to verse 12. Then he's going to say this. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Nevertheless, even though these things are all true, never, there's a nevertheless here that you and I need to learn something from. Right? So question, do I, should I, will I, Live by a philosophy that sets aside my rights, endures, that's the word he used, endures non-preferential life elements, and prioritizes the gospel 
above all other agenda items. Right? That's a, there's a three-part question that, that's a test. Do I? Should I? Will I? Do those things? I go back to Paul's argument here. In verse 4, he picks this argument up. And Paul, as an apostle now, is going to make an argument that since he is an apostle, his life bears the testimony that he is an apostle. He's acknowledged the calling of being an apostle. They are the fruit of his apostleship. So he's, he's mounting his argument here. His argument now is going to become, as an apostle, I have the right to be supported by you as an apostle. Right? That's what he picks up in verse 4. Do, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law Say the same, for it's written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things From you, look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So his argument that gets featured here is the ministry of apostles should be supported and I am an apostle, therefore I should be supported. Right, so this, there's something has happened in this Corinthian setting that Paul is having to bring this up. Part of the hostility that's there was moving against him because they weren't doing what they thought Paul should be doing in this setting. But I don't want us to race past this too quickly, but I'm really going to pick it up next week in a separate message. There is a discomfort that could easily get overlooked in this passage. And we'll pick it up more fully next week. Uh, The offerings that Paul is going to not take from these Corinthians is going to have an impact on his life. It's going to create issues for him. His, His life is going to become less convenient. He's going to actually be in Corinth. And in addition to the role he's called to play by God and all that he's managing elsewhere, including Corinth... He's going to add a job to his responsibilities. And he's going to work part-time as a tent maker. His decision in this moment is not a convenient decision. That's why the word that Bill had this morning is so helpful and timely of the Lord. There There are things that God may have for us that kind of don't make sense. They don't... This doesn't suit Paul's calling here. That he gets to take away from ministry... Try and balance his day and his life by giving himself to yet another task. Listen, he, he still only has 24 hours in a day. The guy's got so much mental wavelength to manage in a day. The guy's got to sleep at some point, eat at some point. He's got to do life at some point. This is not making his life easier. He is making a, if you will, self-destructive decision here. Now, you and I are like, well, he's the Apostle Paul. The dude's like walking on water, champion, everything. Tough as nails. Apostle Paul. Uh, You know, he's also a human being. You want to pick up a little clue of his humanness? And I'll pick this up next week. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says this. To the Philippians, he's writing and says, it It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. What Paul got as an offering that came to him, he considered it help. For his needs. You have helped me. I needed help. 
without you, Philippians, helping me, I was facing trouble. Don't look at Corinthians and go, oh, that's no big deal for Paul. He's Paul. He just give that up in a heartbeat. No income coming from Corinth. No problem. He'll just go to work. Don't treat this like the Bible doesn't treat it. This is a man whose life is going to get harder and more complicated and less less convenient for him because he's not taking from the Corinthians what he has the right to have from them. And that word trouble, it's a weighty word. It's a word pressure. It's translated affliction or anguish, burden, tribulation, trouble. So, remember, this is the Apostle Paul, but, but you're the employee this, or the boss that, or the husband this. You know, you're somebody else with a title and rights. For Paul here, he's going to increase the pressure on his life. That word is about pressure and trouble. He's going to increase the pressure on his life by making this decision. And by the way, if you follow his example, so are you. In whatever category you're called to live in, You're going to create trouble for yourself if you give up your rights for the benefit of somebody else, even in this case, the benefit of a less than attractive little group of folks. So go back to this chapter 9, verse 12 statement here. I want to take it apart. It's got three pieces to it that I want to just highlight today. And this is is an upside down statement. Paul argues and then he throws this nevertheless. So he builds this big argument up and then he says nevertheless and just kind of like wipes the whole thing out by what he says. But he says three things that are going to be helpful for us. He says nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Ben Witherington in his commentary says, Paul, he holds himself up as an example of self-sacrificial behavior, using the very matter on which he is supposedly being questioned as proof, maintaining that he practices self-denial in regard to his rights for the greater good and calls for his audience to imitate him. He does that in the first century. Oh my, how we need to hear this in the 21st century. This is an example of what it looks like for somebody to be under the influence of the truth of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to produce a life that's going to look like something. And this is what it looks like. So let's take these three things apart just for a moment. First, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We have not made use of this right. This is upside down. This is an upside down denial of my personal rights and benefits. It's one thing to play with the word rights. It's another thing to recognize. Paul gave up his personal benefits that he was entitled to have. That's upside down. We don't live that way today. Our culture has a revulsion to this. This is so ignored today. There is a tidal wave of something else. This is what I mean by that enchanted study that we did. There's a tidal wave that gets in the air and we breathe it in and it starts feeling normal to us. And we use these phrases like, hey man, you know, you got to do what's right for you. I'm sorry, have have you heard that phrase before? See, Paul's actions are anything but that. Paul's actions are upside down. Paul saw his individuality attached to other things. He didn't see it in isolation. He wasn't self-defining. You understand there is no way, and our culture is horrible at this. I don't know if you study the philosophy of things, but I, I like to stare at how things work. Our culture has so segregated individuality onto its own little island that it doesn't answer to nearly anything. But you can never know who you are and what you are apart from a context. 
Your life desperately needs to be connected to other things in order for you to figure out what you really are and who you really are. What are the priorities? But your world's not going to teach you that today. It's going to isolate you in some hyper way and you're going to self-define and create your own rules and boundaries of how things ought to be. Charles Taylor his book, A Secular Age, he said, there arises in the Western societies a generalized culture of expressive individualism in which people are encouraged to find their own way, discover their own fulfillment, do their own thing. You know, it's interesting, this word that Paul highlights that he's going to forfeit and give up his rights, his rights. Now, before I read some of these other quotes that are going to come up here, um, depending on how old you are in the room this morning, when I say rights, give up your rights as a Christian. When I say that, depending on how old you are, you're filling it in with two different things. Several different things, actually. So if you're like 40, 50 and up, especially if you're my age and up, Christian rights, Christian rights. You, you're, you're, you're pulling out your phonograph and setting down a needle on it and playing a very old song right now. Because you're talking about, yeah, I, yeah, people, you know, Christians want to argue their rights. You know, they're, you know, whether it's right or not for them to, to have a beer, whether it's right or not for them to go to a movie, whether it's right or not for them to smoke. Well, you know, right, those are the rights for all the old people in the room. Can I just tell you, if you're 35 and below right now, you're going, what's he talking about? <laughs> Christianity today, for the 35 and under, those aren't the rights anybody's arguing about. It's not even a discussion. It's not even a topic. But there are other rights. And quite honestly, they're more severe issues. Here's the right that if you're 35 and under... But basically, if you live in our culture today, this is the right that's being presented to you. It's the right for you to have a pain-free existence. Yeah, all the old people are like, that's a joke. (laughs) It's the right for you to live your life your way with your ideas without interference without being set back, without being criticized, without being ostracized, without there being obstacles in the way, without there being delay. You're being taught you have the right to that in whatever it is that you hope to become or be or do in this world. I, I wish it was as simple as, let's just argue about whether you have the right to have a beer or not. That was so much simpler. This is so much more complicated because it flows into every second of your day, every relationship that you have, every setting that you're in. The moment that setting in that environment begins to be corrosive, it begins to attack you, it begins to be against you, it doesn't work in your favor. There's an entire culture out there that's going, that's wrong, that's wrong. That's not supposed to be that way. Well, what were you thinking, God? I mean, we're mad at God. We're mad at everybody. Because we bought this idea that we have the right to have a life that doesn't have those kinds of qualities. Charles Taylor goes on and says, Each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that it's important to find and live out one's own. Right? You've got to find your identity. You've got to self-label you got to figure that out and then you got to go for it. As against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside. Do you have any idea when you listen to the news and you watch the outrage? Watch the outrage. The news is pretty busy right now. Watch the outrage. The outrage is over how dare anybody impose their convictions or their ideas on another set of culture, the society. Everybody's got a right to do it their own way. That's where the outrage is. You hear it on every interview. You hear it in the news. That's where it all lands. Right, you know that cool little phrase, hey man, don't, don't put that on me. Right, y'all heard that phrase? 
It's kind of like a modern version of something we used to say back in the 60s and 70s. But hey, don't, don't put that on me. Right? The reason why you can take that stance is because this culture has been taught. I got the right to my own space and my own ways. Do not put on me your views. That's where that comes from. John Stark says, our modern secular culture disciples our hearts to be true to ourselves. To reject all outside intrusions. Do you have any idea what that going off on the inside of us is going to do to human relationships? See, I get where governments get in this posture. They're an authority figure who imposes their values. Oh, don't let them oh, rise up, protest. Churches, this, this, this is what is going to drive churches out of our culture. Because if you're genuinely a church, your job is to impose the will of God into this world. That's your job. You don't get to stare into this and go, hey, you know, God's opinion, my opinion, your opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. So, you know, just kind of go. God's just one of many choices. Go with whatever feels good for you. If you like God's, go with God's. If you don't, go with something else. Do you understand? That's not biblical at all. The fact that the culture doesn't want anything imposed on it is going to boot religion, right? You know, true, genuine Christianity right out of existence in this culture. That's that's what's happening right now. But it's also going to have quite an effect on you having a relationship with another human being. Do you know the second you go to have a relationship with them, they're going to do something like put on you outside intrusions? They've got ideas about life. They're different than yours. They want things different than yours. They do things different than you do. They have a certain feel for life and they don't like the way your life feels. So if you really want to live on your island of independence, then you're going to have to blow up all forms of human relationships because at some point you're not going to want to put up with them. They're inconvenient. They're in the way. They're a problem. So listen, this is, this is happening. I just withdraw from every relationship and just do device connections. I don't have to put up with all those people who are putting on me outside intrusions. I just turn you off. I just defriend you and we're done. Kind of works that way in the marriage category today. People are putting off marriage and putting off marriage and putting off marriage because they don't want anybody intruding on them. And those who are married are getting divorced because they don't want anybody intruding on them. This is a destructive idea. But, but listen, it's coming at you through your, your Facebook posts, right? You ever see that little post that says, I need a little me time. You ever see that? And then it's followed by some picture of self-indulgence. Doing a little me time, you know, whatever that is. A little me time. And then we walk with each other and we try to care for one another. And somebody gets in a situation where there's conflict. They're being stretched. This has become hard. And they want to bail and they feel the injustice of that and things are being required of me that I, that should be asked of me and somebody's violated my territory and, and they're not furthering my interest here and oh, oh, oh. And then we walk with that person and we turn to them and say, hey man, you got to do what's right for you. What did you just say? How come when I say you got to do what's right for you, how come that doesn't make all of us do like a dog whistle impression? How come we don't all go? That would be as weird as me saying, hey, hey, dude, I hear you, man. Um, you, know, you need like a debilitating disease and a severe dose of loneliness. If I just said that out of the blue as you were sharing your problem with me, would you kind of go, yeah, yeah, you get me, man. You get me. <laughs> you'd listen to that and you'd go, what did you just say? How can you read a Bible about a God who is the way this God in the Bible is and then turn around and say, hey man, you got to do what's right for you. Can you imagine the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having a pregame discussion before the Son of God is going to put on humanity and die in our place? Can, can you imagine? Jesus, Dude, you got, you got to do what's right for you, man. 
Well, what's right for me? Well, right now, all of creation bows down to me, rightly so, as the creator of everything, and acknowledges that I truly am who I am. I have the right to be God and to be worshipped. So I guess if I'm going to do what's right for me, I'll just sit right here. And everybody who needed to be rescued, they can just go ahead and go to hell. See, whatever's right for you needs the condition of other people for you to figure out whatever that is. You can't answer this in isolation from the other factors of your life. You and I stand today celebrating that what Jesus did was not right for him. It was right for me and for you. That's quite different. I'm not saying, let me put some boundaries here. I'm not saying, Paul's not saying that, that there's no right use for the idea of having rights. That there are certain things that are right. That we should respect rights. That we should respect rights for ourselves. Right? I, I think there's, there's something dignified in you know, the Declaration of Independence. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men were created equal. That they are in, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All right, there's, there's a little challenge in some of that wording, but I, I think that's not a wrong statement. But you do understand that the human being who reads that in 1776 is not thinking like the human being who reads that in 2019. Do you get that? The guys who produced that document, they lived their lives with people like this. They had a sense of community and belonging and family and connection with each other. So when they said, everybody's got rights, they weren't saying 2019 version of that. Today's presentation of everybody's got rights is at the expense of everybody else. It was not that in 1776. And if there is a God who's endowing us with inalienable rights which I think human dignity has something of that in its understanding. At what point do you think God was interested in any of our rights displacing or creating a hostility between those rights and his rights? At what point did the creature ever gain permission to look at his own life and say, you know what, I define my rights in hostility to the creator's rights or by ignoring the creator's rights or by so deprioritizing the creator's rights. Right? You understand, this use of the word rights, it needs to be a little bit more carefully monitored. All right, so you're a Christian Come into the kingdom of God, absorb some of this stuff into our bloodstream, and we have the right to pursue happiness. We're hyper-individualized, so that, that pursuit of happiness now is going to start taking on definitions. By my definition of what will make me happy, what's good for me, and quite often what's good for me doesn't care about what's good for you. You could be collateral damage, and collateral damage is allowed because the highest calling is for me to find the greatest benefit for me. So, you know, the, the Christian version of the Declaration of Independence where we get to pursue happiness is now, but, but God would want me happy. God would want me happy. And at some level, that's true. Please don't leave here thinking, oh, what kind of church do y'all, what do you believe? Like, God, he's like a, pulling legs off of insects. What's this God like? God does want you blessed, joyful, and I'll even use the word happy. Just be careful when you come up with the definition and the pathway there. Right, so are you going to conclude, if, if God wants me happy, therefore, I should not have pain and I should not have suffering. And anything that brings pain and suffering into my life is in and of itself wrong. That needs to go. Is that what that means? Because the Bible's filled with stories about people who walk through pain and suffering. And then the Bible explains that God was in their situation with them actually ordaining that they go through it. So you sure that's what that means? I have the right to a pain-free life? If God wants me happy, does that mean I should not be limited or slowed down or inconvenienced in my goals and dreams that bring me happiness? Because there's a whole section of our society, it doesn't even have to become painful 
for me to say it's out of bound. It just needs to be inconvenient. If relating to you is inconvenient, then that can't be good for me. And, you know, I got, I got to do what's best for me. So putting up with you for another minute, I can't figure out how that's best for me. So are you saying that God's not interested in you and I putting up with people who are inconvenient and in our way? Are you saying that's, that's your recipe for God would want me happy, therefore he would not want these kinds of people in my life? Do you find that in the Bible? Don't you find the people in scripture are having to walk with knuckleheads and weirdos and slowpokes and uh, people who are sometimes for God and sometimes for idolatry. They got all kinds of stuff going on there. They're in their lives. What's the big deal? If you love those who love you, don't even the Gentiles do that? Why does the Bible say that? Because it's poking at the idea that I've designed my whole world to further my interest and I've just surrounded myself with my peeps. They love me, I love them. It's a mutual symbiotic thing. Jesus says, not impressed. <laughs> you want to do something amazing and starting to sound like the kingdom of God? Love those who don't love you. Love your enemies. Then the come and talk to me. A little different value system, right? All right, number two in this upside down equation of Paul's is the idea that we would endure anything. Paul is going to make a decision not in his own interest at his own beneficial cost because we endure anything. I didn't get to do this at the beginning of the year when we started the year with vocabulary words for 2019. Endurance was one of my vocabulary words but the series got too long so I cut it off. So you get to hear it now, right? Mark Sayers in his book, Strange Days, says the contemporary life script of the achievement culture is to arrange a life that delivers constant, pleasurable feelings. To keep the social and the psychic borders up, to keep negative feelings outside. However, he goes on to say, life in the spirit, as described by the New Testament, is a very different proposition than the accruing of positive emotions and feelings. God's salvation plan is a far broader canvas. It may be that God is doing some glorious things that for you and I to participate in will require us to endure some things. And it won't always go our way. It won't always be reinforcing. It won't always be enjoyable. We will be enduring, right? Here's a tour of endurance in scripture. 2 Peter 3. The Lord, he's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What, what is the God who created us doing every day that we exist? He's enduring. He's being patient for some bigger reason. He could remedy this whole thing. He could, he could do what's best for him right now. And all the displeasantness of watching murders in El Paso and selfishness in the hearts of men that's all over this planet would be over in an instant. He wouldn't have to endure another vomitous moment of watching human beings. He could snap his fingers and the whole thing would be over with. But there's another bigger purpose that God is working this great work of repentance and bringing people into the good news of the gospel. So he endures. Every day, he endures. Hebrews 12 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Right? When you and I get tempted to live in an endurance setting, because things and people are not going our way, what do we do in that moment? Try and with all of our might to reinvent the world so that all the negative factors are gone? No, no. He says, hey, how about you just look at him who endured? Who Look what he went through. He endured from sinners such hostility against himself. From sinners, hostility against himself. Look at that and take a lesson. Where do we get the idea that God's 
never going to have a will that you should ever suffer at the hands of somebody else. Where do we get that idea? That if anybody in my world mistreats me, then that's, that's the moment they get ejected. And rightly so. Oh, rightly so? Because the Son of God came and was mistreated. Every day that the universe didn't bow down at his feet and honor him, he was being mistreated. And we know it was much worse than that, wasn't it? This endurance thing is not a bad deal. It's a strategic, godly deal. Philippians chapter 2 turns this on us. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus had rights, didn't he? He can make his argument of who he is, that he has the right to act in his prerogatives and his power as God himself. He's got the right. But this verse highlights that he did just like what Paul did. Paul had rights as an apostle and he says, and I choose to give them up for your benefit. And Jesus does exactly the same thing. He had rights who though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He dressed himself up in this. The glorious God of eternity put on the limitations and the weaknesses and boundaries of this frail human flesh. He had the right to do otherwise. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And why the Bible presents endurance, what what makes us think that, that what we need to do in order for us to live happy, fulfilled life is somehow we've got to sidestep anything that looks like it calls for endurance. If that's going to be hard, that's going to challenge me. It's going to be out of step for me. It's going to be on me. It's going to put me in a vulnerable position. If it's going to be any of those things, I need to figure out a way to get around that. I need to avoid that at all costs. I need to optimize my life, move all the parts, get rid of the people. Because I'm trying to be happy, all right? I'm tr- and then that doesn't look like happy. But you set the Bible aside too quickly. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Sometimes... There's endurance on your way to joy. The things that are the richest, most satisfying, most God-glorifying things perhaps in our lives require endurance on our way to that which is about to be accomplished. Right? The last two verses here on the 2 Corinthians 1. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure. Right? This is a strategy. You're enduring and God is writing a script into your life that others get to read, that later on you become a source of refreshing, a spring in a desert for somebody else because your life got taught through difficulty to see and to know God in some way that now you can transfer that into other people's lives. God sees that as worthy. Listen to this last thought, 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. This is Paul's advice as an apostle to a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy, patiently endure evil in your calling, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's why. Because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Timothy, patiently endure in the ministry because this is where it leads. Along the way, miserable, challenging, hard, questioning, difficult, enduring. But at the other end, God grants repentance. People's lives are impacted and affected. 
in, in our culture, listen, this is why I said this, this stuff is, it's, it's lead poisoning. It's all over the place. Right here, here's an observation from paying attention to this stuff over the last 20 something years. Paul's advice to Timothy about enduring, being in ministry and enduring evil, those things go together. If you're going to do ministry, and particularly Timothy's going to be, give his life to ministry, so he, he's going to be a pastor, if you're going to do that, you are going to have to endure evil. What's going to come with that is a particular flavor of evil that will find its way to your life on a regular basis. So, if you're ever pondering, do I want to be in ministry? That, this is a realistic thing. But let me, let me notice something with you. At least what I've noticed. In the... 80s and 90s, the church was filled with people, young people in particular, who wanted to leave their secular world of employment and go full-time into the ministry. And the history of our church is full of those people, right? Peter did that. I did that. Matt Mason did that. Pete Shefferstein did that. Probably leaving some. Billy Ray's did that. Right. And that's just the people who we were able to actually bring on. There were more. Or there are guys who left here and went and did that elsewhere who were part of our church. They had a desire to do that. Can I tell you, since the 2000s, I have seen more pastors leave being pastors to go back into the secular world as employment. And I can list off many of them. And I can find very few people who wanted to replace them. Do I think that's a coincidence? No. I think that's lead poisoning. I think that's a, a world that has taught us. Design your world with the least amount of interruptions for you so that you may get to your destination of personal fulfillment. And then you stare at ministry and you're kind of like, uh, uh, it has its own brand of evil in it. I, I'm good right here. You need me to help out every once in a while? Let me know. I'll come help out every once in a while. That's not a coincidence. That's because this mindset is in our world. It's the way we function. It's the way we think. But it's Paul setting that aside. And he's going to set it aside for the gospel. He has a functioning value system that is enormously attached to and motivated by the gospel. Right? That's the last thing he says. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Right? So we'll do anything before we'll put an obstacle in the way of this. This, this is the, the treasure that the gospel is to us in our lives. Everything else answers to it. We locate everything else based on the impact it has on the gospel. So it's an interesting thing here, and we'll look next week a little bit more at Paul and his fundraising and the money issues that are in the New Testament. But it'd be, it'd be very tempting when you read this to, to read it from a, a 21st century mindset. Right? So Paul doesn't want to put an obstacle in the way of the Corinthians by receiving money from them. Right? So immediately our mind thinks of, yeah, you know, televangelist ministers who abuse funds. Yeah, Paul wants to avoid that. Probably not the situation that Paul is in. Right? Let me read you this quote and I'll explain it to you. Craig Blomberg says, The powerful patrons in the Corinthian church doubtless would have preferred to have Paul accept their money, but give them deference and political support in return. When he refused and continued to rely on tent making instead, they charged that this, his unwillingness to go along with their patronage demonstrated that he did not have the same authority as other itinerant apostles and preachers. Basically, Paul was refusing to be bought. Remember the patron system? We've talked a lot about that in the Corinthian world. There was a patron system. It, it, was, it was like the mafia. I mean, it was like... You know, who was the godfather in your little strand of network? And that guy had power and influence. He put people in political offices. And he created an atmosphere because he had a view of life and a view of the economy and a view of business. And if you liked that and you liked his benefit, you got on board with him. Well, some of those guys were getting saved and coming into the church. 
And they were, they were creating this divisive, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. That's where they're getting this stuff from. I'm of this guy. So this guy, the Apostle Paul, is coming him. Great! Paul will stay with me in my guest home. And we'll put him up. And I'll supply for all of his needs. But, but what that guy wanted is he wants the Apostle Paul to cast a shadow on him. To support him. To validate him. To help him gain even more status. So Paul says, you know what? You guys are so much into that. When I come to Corinth, I'd rather not take any of your money. So that I don't behold to anybody. I'm here to say what God's got me to say. And I'm not politically attached to anyone. So I, I would rather make my life hard than create an obstacle for the gospel. I, I love Paul's mindset. And I just want to you know, kick that mindset out into us. When we, when we go to do our lives with our titles and our rights attached to our titles. We're just living life on a daily basis. How, how often does it pop in your head with what I'm about to do, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to post? Would that be good for the gospel? How often do you bump into that thought? It's like, I don't know, once or twice a week. Listen, you and I make a lot of decisions, go a lot of places, interact with a lot of people. I would say you shouldn't be able to go too many hours in your day without asking yourself that question. Would this be good for the gospel? Would this create an obstacle for the gospel? You're driving in traffic. One of those knuckleheads cuts you off. <laughs> this, this is what goes through my head because a lot goes through my head in that moment I know I'm your pastor and I'm supposed to be very sanctified but a lot <laughs> is going through my head in that moment and what chases in right behind those thoughts is if you stare that guy down and make some ugly response to what he just did What are you going to do if you're standing next to him in line at the Walmart up here? Because he's going to the same place. And you want to strike up a conversation about the gospel. Is that going to work? No. Right? So even better for me. What if he walks in church on Sunday? (laughs) That guy's the pastor here. (laughs) Right? That's a problem for the gospel, isn't it? Right? What? what you and I say and do creates something of an impression that could be a problem for the gospel in our lives. We're about to enter the the world of politics, right? You're going to be sick of politics in a year and a half, right? After we get past the next presidential election. You're going to have conversations about politics. You're going to post something about politics. You're going to say that was smart and that was stupid. That guy's a genius. This guy's an idiot. You're going to say something in this category. When you're done saying that, will you have created an obstacle for the gospel? Will you have stuck your neck out in categories that aren't so important for you to hold a position that alienates people in such a hostile way. But you're known for that position. For instance. Because this happens. And the more God has added to our church. And I don't know if you've noticed. But God is adding to our church. So there's a diversity here. There aren't the people that were in church with you in 2000 or 1995 or whenever. They're people you don't know. And you don't know where they're coming from. And you don't know what offends them until you get around them enough to learn that. Did you know that our secretary, Georgina, and her husband are Mexicans? Right? They, they're citizenship. They were born in Mexico. Right? So this has happened. I've actually heard this. I've heard this from our African-American uh, brothers and sisters here. You go to a covenant group and you sit and there's a little side conversation taking place before or after the meeting. And, you know, you're being fed by whatever was in the news. Whatever's in the news. And so, I don't know, maybe, 
maybe Donald Trump's wall is in the news and, and border issues are in the news. And you start talking about people who are coming across, you know, you've got these, and there's laws, you know, there's a land of laws. And you, all of a sudden, a passion that no one's ever seen in the worship setting that comes out of you. Because it's clear, we should be more jazzed about the border of America than we are about the living God. So, all of a sudden, I'm come to life and I've got an opinion because we're a country of laws. How many of you know that if you were born in Mexico and you were sitting in that meeting, you might feel a little bit different about the people crossing the border and the troubles that they're fleeing and the issues that are in their life? I'm not trying to tell you whether you believe in laws or not. I'm just trying to tell you, you can say things in such a way that you create obstacles in other people's lives. Right? This was an issue when Barack Obama was elected president in a church predominantly full of white people who sat in small groups and acted like, oh, the devil himself is now president. You know, when you're a white person and you say that, okay, yeah, you got some policies and some beliefs and some, yeah. If you're a black person and you hear somebody say that, do you have any idea what that makes that person feel like? Do you have any idea how many obstacles you just installed in being able to share the gospel with that person? And I haven't even gotten into social media. Right, you post things on social media, post things... That, that celebrates certain things. You know, social media is designed to celebrate something. How many Christians are celebrating the same broken, worthless stuff that the world is celebrating? It's like, really, you, you, you can't put a smile on your face and, and act like you're enjoying a setting unless there's a beverage in your hand. Really? I mean, are those things connected? I'm not even trying to tell you whether you should or should not be drinking. I'm just saying, well, whose script taught you that? That I just can't, woohoo! No, I gotta go, woohoo! I, I need that to get the woohoo out of me. Uh, okay. Every hour, something should go off in me. I'm here on a mission. Something should go off in me. It went off in Paul. I'm not going to do anything that puts an obstacle in the way of the gospel. That dominates my everyday existence. And so here for Paul, this is where we land. Eric, you can come back up here. Paul's going to land with an unattractive group of people with rights that truly are his with inviting inconvenience and hardship into his life for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's going to do to these Corinthians here. Listen, why is that such a big deal? Why is it for the sake of the gospel? Why is that such a big deal? Okay, if, if you backed away from your life, you can put your outline in. You've got that 30,000 foot view of life. Okay, that's not big enough. Back out further until you can sort of take a panoramic shot of the universe. And then just ask that universe this question. Why are you here? Because you are that little bitty infinitesimal dot in that question. And if you have no idea why this is here, you don't know why you're here either. You can't. But you know what God's answer to why are you here? In the beginning, God created. God created what you see. God created what exists. God created the lives that you and I are living. They belong to him. He was in the beginning and he created all things for himself. And when sin came in, it put a wedge between God and his creation that the gospel is God overcoming that wedge. It's the thing God is doing. Why would my life answer to that question of every hour that I exist? Because it is what God is doing in the universe right now. My life answers to that because the creator has rights. Not just me having rights to a happy life, to a this life, to a self-defined life, to whatever I prefer life. The creator has rights. And God created you. Listen, maybe you're here this morning before I pray for us. Maybe you're here this morning and 
You've never stopped to consider you're this little dot in this massive creation and everything answers to God. And he wants that life back. He wants your life back. He wants you out of your own heart's desire to give your life back to him. That's the gospel. God did what needed to be done to tear down every wall so that if you want to return to God, you can. You can be forgiven of anything you've ever done that's broken God's laws. You can be cleansed by the blood that Jesus Christ shed on your behalf. And you can be restored to God in intimacy and in relationship with him forever. That's what God is doing in this world. And you're here this morning and maybe, maybe you need to do that. Maybe you want to do that. Maybe you're here and you've never done that. Right, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. And if you'd like to do it, you can do that right here, right now. You turn to God and give him your life back. It's his. He created it. I, I know it's got your name on it, but it, it was created by him and for him. And it will never make any sense to you until it's back in his hands. That individual thing, it doesn't really work. You need a context in order to figure out who you are. And the context is the God who created you for the purpose that he created. So let's, let's stand up together. Well, thank you for just moments when we can gather and, and just get a little bit of help on how we're thinking through our lives. What's good, what's bad, what's going on? Lord, I remember the day in my life when I just was fully convinced that my life is broken and it's out of place. And then I heard that there was a way back to you. And I knew in my heart I had to do that. Lord, for every person who's here this morning who's convinced of that, Lord, help them right now. Let your spirit draw them. Open their desire to you, Lord. If you're here this morning, you walked in here and weren't quite sure about your relationship with God. But you want to be sure and you want a real relationship with him. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to come into your life. He wants to be restored. He wants his distance to be cut off. Well, here's what you can say to God. And if you want to pray this, pray this to God. If you agree with these words. God, I need you. And I want to give my life back to you. You created it. You had plans. You have rights. God, this morning I believe. I believe you. I believe in Jesus Christ. He was God. Come as a man. I believe he lived a life that was sinless and perfect. And he gave up his rights to go to a cross and die in my place to forgive me of my sins Lord this morning I don't just believe that I want to receive that forgiveness you offer it to me God I'm, I'm here to take it I want to be forgiven Lord forgive me and God I turn to you I, I bring my life to you Lord everything I understand that to mean whatever I'm going to be whoever I'll be in the future God I put it in your hands Have my life, Lord. And lead me from this day forward. I want to follow you. Lord, for all of us who are here, who at some point we've prayed that prayer, Lord, we're walking with you, but we're also walking in this world and the ideas of this world have crept under our skin. We've become intolerant, unloving. We've defined whether somebody is good in my world or not by what they do for me. God, we have lost the ability to be things in each other's lives. 
to serve, to lay our lives down, to be inconvenienced, to give up our rights, but to take up your cause. To endure evil so that somebody may have the opportunity to repent and turn to you. To go through hardship so that someday we might be able to give away what we've learned in that season to somebody else who will need it in their moment. God, this world has taught us to avoid that as a lifestyle. Lord, as I prayed for us as a church last night, Lord, can't you convince us better than the world convinces us? Lord, can't you? Can't you convince us that your promises are better than the false promises of this world that never fulfill? God, we're so convinced of the wrong thing. Can't you cause our hearts to say, yes, God, I'm with you. I'm not going to avoid laying my life down. I'm not going to avoid giving up my rights. I'm not going to avoid having to endure something. Lord, I'm not out to avoid those things. I'm out for your glory and the promises that get fulfilled as we walk with you, that people get saved and those who are hurting get comforted and that we get refreshed as we give away life. Lord, we want to be a church who believes those things. Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his life and his example. How would you transfer those realities into our lives today? Let that be Lakeview Christian Center. Today, each of us, for your glory.